Chapter 16. Reading. We are towed by steam launch. Irritating behavior of small boats. How they get in the way of steam launches. George and Harris again shirk their work. Rather a hackneyed story. Streetly and goring. We came inside of Reading about 11. The river is dirty and dismal here. One does not linger in the neighborhood of Reading. The town itself is a famous old place, dating from the dim days of King Ethelred, when the Danes anchored their warships in the Kennet, and started from Reading to ravage all the land of Wessex, and here Ethelred and his brother Alfred fought and defeated them, Ethelred doing the praying and Alfred the fighting. In later years, Reading seems to have been regarded as a handy place to run down to, when matters were becoming unpleasant in London. Parliament generally rushed off to Reading whenever there was a plague on at Westminster, and in 1625 the law followed suit, and all the courts were held at Reading. It must have been worthwhile having a mere ordinary plague now and then in London to get rid of both the lawyers and the Parliament. During the parliamentary struggle, Reading was besieged by the Earl of Essex, and a quarter of a century later the Prince of Orange routed King James's troops there. Henry I lies buried at Reading, in the Benedictine Abbey founded by him there, the ruins of which may still be seen, and in this same abbey, great John of Gaunt was married to the Lady Blanche. At Reading Lock we came up with a steam launch, belonging to some friends of mine, and they towed us up to within about a mile of Streetly. It is very delightful being towed up by a launch. I prefer it myself to rowing. The run would have been more delightful still if it had not been for a lot of wretched small boats that were continually getting in the way of our launch, and, to avoid running down which, we had to be continually easing and stopping. It is really most annoying, the manner in which these rowing boats get in the way of one's launch up the river. Something ought to be done to stop it. And they are so confoundedly impertinent, too, over it. You can whistle till you nearly burst your boiler before they will trouble themselves to hurry. I would have one or two of them run down now and then if I had my way, just to teach them all a lesson. The river becomes very lovely from a little above Reading. The railway rather spoils it near Tylehurst, but from Maple Durham up to Streetly it is glorious. A little above Maple Durham Lock you pass Hardwick House, where Charles and I, Charles I played bowls. The neighborhood of Pangbourne, where the quaint little Swan Inn stands, must be as familiar to the habitues of the art exhibitions as it is to its own inhabitants. My friend's launch cast us loose just below the toe, and then Harris wanted to make out that it was my turn to pull. This seemed to me most unreasonable. It had been arranged in the morning that I should bring the boat up three miles above Reading. Well, here we were, ten miles above Reading. Surely it was now their turn again. I could not get either George or Harris to see the matter in its proper light, however, so to save argument I took the skulls. I had not been pulling for more than a minute or so when George noticed something black floating on the water, and we drew up to it. George leant over it, and as we neared it, and laid hold of it, and then he drew back with a cry and a blanched face. It was the dead body of a woman. It lay very lightly on the water, and the face was sweet and calm. It was not a beautiful face. It was too prematurely aged-looking, too thin and drawn to be that. But it was a gentle, lovable face, in spite of its stamp of pinch and poverty, and upon it was that look of restful peace that comes to the faces of the sick sometimes when at last the pain has left them. Fortunately for us, we having no desire to be kept hanging about coroner's courts, some men on the bank had seen the body too, and now took charge of it from us. We found out the woman's story afterwards. Of course it was the old, old vulgar tra tragedy. She had loved and been deceived, or had deceived herself. 
Anyhow, she had sinned, some of us do now and then, and her family and friends, naturally shocked and indignant, had closed their doors against her. Left to fight the world alone, with the millstone of her shame around her neck, she had sunk ever lower and lower. For a while, she had kept both herself and the child on the twelve shillings a week that twelve hours of drudgery a day procured her, paying six shillings out of it for the child, and keeping her own body and soul together on the remainder. Six shillings a week does not keep a body and soul together very unitedly. They want to get away from each other when there is only such a very slight bond as that between them. And one day, I suppose, the pain and the dull monotony of it all had stood before her eyes plainer than usual, and the mocking specter had frightened her. She had made one last appeal to friends, but against the chill wall of their respectability, the voice of the erring outcast fell unheeded. And then she had gone to see her child, and held it in her arms and kissed it, in a weary, dull sort of way, and without betraying any particularly particular emotion of any kind, and had left it after putting it into its hand a penny box of chocolate she had brought it, and afterwards, with her last few shillings, had taken a ticket and come down to Goring. It seemed that the bitterest thoughts of her life must have centered around the wooded reaches and the bright green meadows around Goring. But women strangely hug the knife that stabs them, and perhaps amidst the gall there may have mingled also sunny memories of sweetest hours, spent upon those shadowed deeps over which the great trees bend their branches down so low. She had wandered about the woods by the river's brink all day, and then when evening fell and the gray twilight spread its dusky robe upon the waters, she stretched her arms out to the silent river that had known her sorrow and her joy. And the old river had taken her into its gentle arms, and had laid her weary head upon its bosom, and had hushed away the pain. Thus she had sinned in all things, sinned in living and in dying. God help her, and all other sinners, if any more there be. Goring on the left bank and Streetly on the right bank are both or either charming places to stay at for a few days. The, the reaches down to Pangbourne woo one for a sunny sail or for a moonlight row, and the country round about is full of beauty. We had, an in, we had intended to push on to Wallingford that day, but the sweet smiling face of the river here lured us to linger for a while. So we left our boat at the bridge, and went up into Streetly and lunched at the Bull, much to, Mont much to Montmorency's satisfaction. They say that the hills on each side of the stream here once joined and formed a barrier across what is now the Thames, and that then the river ended there above Goring in one vast lake. I am not in a position either to contradict or affirm this, station, this statement. I simply offer it. It is an ancient place, streetly, dating back, like most riverside towns and villages, to British and Saxon times. Goring is not nearly so pretty a little spot to stop at as streetly, if you have your choice, but it is passing fair enough in its way, and is near the railway in case you want to slip off without paying your hotel bill. Chapter 17. Washing Day. Fish and Fishers. On the Art of Angling. A Conscientious Fly-Fisher. A Fishy Story. We stayed two days at Streetly and got our clothes washed. We had tried washing them ourselves in the river under Georgia's superintendent, and it had been a failure. Indeed, it had been more than a failure, because we were worse off after we had washed our clothes than we were before. Before we had washed them, they had been very, very dirty, it is true, but they were just wearable. After we had washed them, well, the river between Reading and Hinley was much cleaner after we had washed our clothes in it than it was before. All the dirt contained in the river between Reading and Hinley we collected during that wash and worked it into our clothes. The washerwoman at Streetly said she felt she owed it to herself to charge us just three, just three times the usual prices for that wash. 
She said it had not been like washing. It had been more in the nature of excavating. We paid the bill without a murmur. The neighborhood of Streetly and Goring is a great fishing center. There is some excellent fishing to be had here. The fisher ab- the river abounds in pike, roach, dace, gudgeon, and eels just here, and you can sit and fish for them all day. Some people do. They never catch them. I never knew anybody catch anything of the Thames except minnows and dead cats, but that has nothing to do, of course, with fishing. The local fisherman's guide doesn't say a word about catching anything. All it says is the place is a good station for fishing, and from what I have seen of the district, I am quite prepared to bear out this statement. There is no spot in the world where you can get more fishing or where you can fish for a longer period. Some fishermen come here and fish for a day, and others stop and fish for a month. You can hang on and fish for a year if you want to. It will be all the same. The Angler's Guide to the Thames says that Jack and Perch are also to be had about here, but there the Angler's Guide is wrong. Jack and Perch may be about there. Indeed, I know for a fact that they are. You can see them there in the shoals when you are out for a walk along the banks. They come and stand half out of the water with their mouths open for biscuits. And if you go for a bathe, they crowd round and get in your way and irritate you. But they are not to be had by a bit of worm on the end of a hook or anything like it. Not they. I am not a good fisherman myself. I devoted a considerable amount of attention to the subject at one time and was getting on, as I thought, fairly well. But the old hands told me that I should never be any real good at it. Excuse me. And advised me to give it up. They said I was an extremely neat thrower, and that I seemed to have plenty of gumption for the thing, and quite enough constitutional laziness. But they were sure I should never make anything of a fisherman. I had not got sufficient imagination. They said that as a poet, or a shilling shocker, or a reporter, or anything of that kind, I might be satisfactory, but that to gain any position as a Tim's angler would require more play of fancy, more power of invention than I appeared to, pres- to possess. Some people are under the impression that all that is required to make a good fisherman is the ability to tell lies easily and without blushing, but this is a mistake. Mere bald fabrication is useless. The very- veriest tyro can manage that. It is in the circumstantial detail, the embellishing touches of probability, the general air of scrupulous, almost of pedantic veracity, that the experienced angler is seen. Anybody can come in and say, oh, I caught 15 dozen perch yesterday evening, or last Monday I landed a gudgeon weighing 18 pounds and measuring three feet from the tip of the tail. There is no art, no skill required for that sort of thing. It shows pluck, but that is all. No, your accomplished angler would scorn to tell a lie that way. His method is a study in itself. He comes in quietly with his hat on, appropriates the most comfortable chair, lights his pipe, and commences to puff in silence. He lets the youngsters brag away for a while, and then, during a momentary lull, he removes the pipe from his mouth and remarks, as he knocks the ashes out against the bars, Well, I had a haul on Tuesday evening That's that it's not much good my telling anybody about. Oh, why is that, they ask. "'Because I don't expect anybody would believe me if I did,' replies the old fellow calmly, without even a tinge of bitterness in his voice, as he refills his pipe, and requests the landlord to bring him three of scotch, cold. There is a pause after this, nobody feeling sufficiently sure of himself to contradict the old gentleman. So he has to go on by himself without any encouragement. "'No,' he continued thoughtfully, "'I shouldn't believe it myself if nobody, if anybody told it to me, but it's a fact for all that.' I had been sitting there all the afternoon and had caught literally nothing, except a few dozen dace and a score of jack, and I was just about giving it up as a bad job when I suddenly felt a rather smart pull at the line. 
I thought it was another little one, and I went to jerk it up. Hang me if I could move the rod. It took me half an hour, half an hour, sir, to land that fish. And every moment I thought the line was going to snap. I reached him at last, and what do you think it was? A sturgeon, a forty-pound sturgeon, taken on a line, sir. Yes, you may well look surprised. I'll have another three of Scotch, landlord, please. And then he goes on to tell of the astonishment of everybody who saw it, and what his wife said when he got home, and of what Joe Buggles thought about it. I asked the landlord of an inn up the river once if it did not injure him sometimes, listening to the tales that the fishermen about there told him, and he said, Oh, no, not now, sir. It it used to knock me over a bit at first, but, Lord love you, me and the missus, we listen to him all day now. It's what you're used to, you know. It's what you're used to. I knew a young man once. He was a most conscientious fellow, and when he took to fly fishing, he determined never to exaggerate his hauls by more than 25%. When I have caught 40 fish, he said, then I will will tell people that I have caught 50, and so on. But I will not lie any more than that, because it is sinful to lie. But the 25% plan did not work well at all. He never was able to use it. The greatest number of fish he ever caught in one day was three. And you can't add 25% to three, at least not in fish. So he increased his percentage to 33 and a third, but that again was awkward when he had only caught one or two. So to simplify matters, he made up his mind just to double the quantity. He stuck to this arrangement for a couple of months, and then he grew satisfied with it. Nobody believed him when he told that he only doubled, and he therefore gained no credit that way whatever, while his moderation put him at a disadvantage among the other anglers. When he had really caught three small fish, and he said he had caught six, it used to make him quite jealous to hear a man, whom he knew for a fact had only caught one, going about telling people he had landed two dozen. So eventually, he made one final arrangement with himself, which he has religiously held to ever since, and that was to count each fish that he caught as ten, and to assume ten to begin with. For example, if he did not catch any fish at all, then he said he had caught ten fish. You could never catch less than ten fish by his system. That was the foundation of it. Then, if by any chance he really did catch one fish, he called it twenty, while two fish would count thirty, three, forty, and so on. It is a simple and e-worked plan, and there has been some talk lately of its being made use by the angling fraternity in general. Indeed, the committee of the Thames Anglers Association did recommend its adoption about two years ago, but some of the older members opposed it. They said they would consider the idea if the number were doubled, and each fish counted as twenty. If you ever have an evening to spare up the river, I should advise you to drop into one of the little village inns and take a seat in the tap room. You will be nearly sure to meet one or two old rodmen sipping their toddy there, and they will tell you enough fishy stories in half an hour to give you indigestion for a month. George and I, I don't know what had become of Harris, he had gone out and had a shave early in the afternoon, and had then come back and spent full forty minutes in pipe claying his shoes. We had not seen him since. George and I, therefore, and the dog, left to ourselves, went for a walk to Wallingford on the second evening, and coming home we called in at a little riverside inn for a rest and other things. We went into the parlor and sat down. There was an old fellow there, smoking a long clay pipe, and we naturally began chatting. He told us that it had been a fine day today, and we told him that it had been a fine day yesterday, and then we all told each other that we thought it would be a fine day tomorrow, and George said the crops seemed to be coming up nicely. After that, it came out, somehow or other, that we were strangers in the neighborhood and that we were going away the next morning. There was then a pause ensued in the conversation, during which our eye wandered round the room. They finally rested upon a dusty old glass case, 
fixed very high up above the chimney piece, and containing a trout. It rather fascinated me, that trout. It was such a monstrous fish. In fact, at first glance, I thought it was a cod. Ah, said the old gentleman, following the direction of my gaze. Fine fellow that, ain't he? Quite uncommon, I murmured, and George asked the old man how much he thought it weighed. Eighteen pounds six ounces, said our friend, rising and taking down his coat. Yes, he continued, it were sixteen year ago, come the third of next month that I landed him. I caught him just below the bridge with a minnow. They told me he were in the river, and I said I'd have him, and so I did. You don't see many fish that size about here now, I'm thinking. Good night, gentlemen. Good night. And he went out and left us alone. We could not take our eyes off the fish after that. It really was a remarkably fine fish. We were still looking at it when the local carrier, who had just stopped at the inn, came to the door of the room with a pot of beer in his hand, and he also looked at the fish. "'Good-sized trout, that,' said George, turning round to him. "'Ah, you may well say that, sir,' replied the man, and then, after a pull at his beer, he said, "'Maybe you weren't here, sir, when that fish was caught?' "'No,' we told him. "'We were strangers in the neighborhood.' "'Ah,' said the carrier. "'Then, of course, how should you? "'It was nearly five years ago that I caught that trout.' "'Oh, was it you who caught it then?' said I. "'Yes, sir,' replied the genial old fellow. "'I caught him just below the lock, leastways when what was the lock then, one Friday afternoon, and the remarkable thing about it is that I caught him with a fly. I'd gone out pike-fishing, bless you, never thinking of a trout, and when I saw that whopper on the end of my line, blessed if it didn't take quite take me aback. Well, you see, he weighed twenty-six pounds. Good night, gentlemen, good night.' Five minutes afterwards, a third man came in and described how he had caught it early one morning with Bleak, and then he left, and a stolid, solemn-looking, middle-aged individual came in and sat down over by the window. None of us spoke for a while, but at length George turned to the newcomer and said, I beg your pardon, I hope you will forgive the liberty that we, perfect strangers in the neighborhood, are taking, but my friend here and myself would be so much obliged if you would tell us how you caught that trout up there. Why, who told you I caught that trout? was the surprised query. We said that nobody had told us so, but somehow or other we felt instinctively that it was he who had done it. Well, it's a most remarkable thing, most remarkable, answered the stolid stranger, laughing, because as a matter of fact, you are quite right. I did catch it. But fancy you're guessing it like that. Dear me, it's really a most remarkable thing. And And then he went on and told us how it had taken him half an hour to land it and how it had broken his rod. He said he had weighed it carefully when he reached home, and it had turned the scale at thirty-four pounds. He went in his turn, and when he was gone, the landlord came in to us. We told him the various histories we had heard about his trout, and he was immensely amused, and we all laughed very heartily. Fancy Bate, Jim Bates, and Joe Muggles, and Mr. Jones, and old Billy Motters all telling you that they had caught it. Ha, ha, ha. Well, that is good, said the honest old fellow, laughing heartily. Yes, they are the sort to give it to me, to put up in my parlor if they had caught it, they are. Ha, ha, ha. And then he told us the real history of the fish. It seemed that he had caught it himself years ago, when he was quite a lad, not by any art or skill, but by that unaccountable luck that appears to always wait upon a boy when he plays the wag from school and goes out fishing on a sunny afternoon with a bit of string tied onto the end of a tree. He said that bringing home that trout had saved him from a whacking, that even his schoolmaster had said it was worth the rule of three and practice put together. He was called out of the room at this point, and George and I turned our gaze upon the fish. It really was a most astonishing trout. The more we looked at it, the more we marveled at it. It excited George so much that he climbed up on the back of a chair to get a better view of it. 
And then the chair slipped, and George clutched wildly at the trout case to save himself, and down it came with a crash. George and the chair on top of it. You haven't injured the fish, have you? I cried in alarm, rushing up. I hope not, said George, rising cautiously and looking about. But he had. That trout lay shattered into a thousand fragments. I say a thousand, but they may have only been nine hundred. I did not count them. We thought it strange and unaccountable that a stuffed trout should break up into little pieces like that. And so it would have been strange and accountable if it had been a stuffed trout, but it was not. That trout was Plaster of Paris. Chapter 18 Locks George and I are photographed. Wallingford, Dorchester, Abingdon, a family man. A good spot for drowning. A difficult bit of water. Demoralizing effect of river air. We left Streetly early the next morning and pulled up to Cullum and slept under the canvas in the backwater there. The river is not extraordinarily interesting between Streetly and Wallingford. From Cleve you get a stretch of six and a half miles without a lock. I believe this is the longest uninterrupted stretch anywhere above Teddington, and the Oxford Club make use of it for their trial eights. But however satisfactory this absence of locks may be to rowing men, it is to be regretted by the mere pleasure-seeker. For myself, I am fond of locks. They pleasantly break the monotony of the pole. I like sitting in the boat and slowly rising out of the cool depths up into new reaches and fresh views, or sinking down, as it were, out of the world, and then waiting while the gloomy gates creak and the narrow strip of daylight between them widens till the fair, smiling river lies full before you, and you push your little boat out from its brief prison onto the welcoming waters once again. They are picturesque little spots, these locks. The stout old lock keeper, or his cheerful-looking wife or bright-eyed daughter, are pleasant folk to have a passing chat with. Footnote, or rather were, the conservancy of late seems to have constituted itself into a society for the employment of idiots. A good many of the new lock keepers, especially in the more crowded portions of the river, are excitable, nervous old men quite unfitted for their post. You meet other boats there, and river gossip is exchanged. The Thames would not be the fairyland it is without its flower-decked locks. Talking of locks reminds me of an accident George and I very nearly had one summer's morning at Hampton Court. It was a glorious day, and the lock was crowded, and, as is a common practice up the river, a speculative photographer was taking a picture of us all as we lay upon the rising waters. I did not catch what was going on at first, and was, therefore, extremely surprised at noticing George hurriedly smooth out his trousers, ruffle his hair, and stick his cap on in a rakish manner at the back of his head, and then, assuming an expression of mingled affability and sadness, sit down in a graceful attitude and try to hide his feet. My first idea was that he had suddenly caught sight of some girl he knew, and I looked about to see who it was. Everybody in the lock seemed to have been suddenly struck wooden. They were all standing or sitting about in the most quaint and curious attitudes I ever have seen off a Japanese fan. All the girls were smiling. Oh, did they, oh they did look so sweet. And all the fellows were frowning and looking stern and noble. And then, at last, the truth flashed across me, and I wondered if I should be in time. Ours was the first boat, and it would be unkind of me to spoil the man's picture, I thought. So I faced round quickly and took up a position in the prow, where I leant with careless grace upon the hitcher, in an attitude suggestive of agility and strength. I arranged my hair with a curl over the forehead, and threw an air of tender wistfulness into my expression, mingled with a touch of cynicism, which I am told suits me. As we stood, waiting for the eventful moment, I heard someone behind call out, "'Hi! Look at your nose!' I could not turn round to see what was the matter, and whose nose it was that was to be looked at. 
I stole a side glance at George's nose. Uh, it was all right at all events. There was nothing wrong with it that could be altered. I squinted down at my own, and that seemed all that could be expected also. Look at your nose, you stupid ass, came the same voice again, louder. And then another voice cried, Push your nose out, can't you? You, you two with the dog! Neither George nor I dared to turn round. The man's head was on the cap, and the picture might be taken any moment. Was it us they were calling to? What was the matter with our noses? Why were they to be pushed out? But now the whole lock started yelling, and a stentorian voice from the back shouted, Look at your boat, sir, you and the red and black caps. It's your two corpses that will get taken in that photo if you ain't quick. We looked then and saw that the nose of our boat had got fixed under the woodwork of the lock, while the incoming water was rising all around it and tilting it up. In another moment we should be over. Quick as thought, we each seized an oar, and a vigorous blow against the side of the lock with the butt-ends released the boat and sent us sprawling on our backs. We did not come out well in that photograph, George and I. Of course, as was to be expected, our luck ordained it, that the men should set his wretched machine in motion at the precise moment that we were both lying on our backs, with a wild expression of where am I of and what is it on our faces, and our four feet waving madly in the air. Our feet were undoubtedly the leading article in that photograph, but indeed very little else was to be seen. They filled up the foreground entirely. Behind them you caught glimpses of the other boats and bits of the surrounding scenery, but everything and everybody else in the lock looked so utterly insignificant and paltry compared with our feet, that all the other people felt quite ashamed of themselves and refused to subscribe to the picture. The owner of one steam launch, who had bespoke six copies, rescinded the order on seeing the negative. He said he would take them if anybody could show him his, his launch, but nobody could. It was somewhere behind George's right foot. There was a good deal of unpleasantness over the business. The photographer thought we ought to take a dozen copies each, seeing that the photo was about nine-tenths us, but we declined. We said we had no objection to being photoed full length, but we preferred being taken the right way up. Wallingford, six miles above Streetly, is a very ancient town, and has been an active center for the making of English history. It was a rude, mud-built town in the time of the Britons, who squatted there, until the Roman legions evicted them, and replaced their clay-baked walls by mighty fortifications, the trace of which time has not yet succeeded in sweeping away, so well those old-world masons knew how to build. But time, though he halted at Roman walls, soon crumbled Romans to dust, and on the ground in later years fought savage Saxons and huge Danes until the Normans came. It was a walled and fortified town up to the time of the Parliamentary War, when it suffered a long and bitter siege from Fairfax. It fell at last, and then the walls were raised. From Wallingford up to Dorchester, the neighborhood of the river grows more hilly, varied, and picturesque. Dorchester stands half a mile from the river. It can be reached by paddling up the Thames if you have a small boat, but the best way is to leave the river at Day's Lock and take a walk across the fields. Dorchester is a delightfully peaceful old place, nestling in stillness and silence and drowsiness. Dorchester, like Wallingford, Wallingford, was a city in ancient British times. It was then called Caer Doran, the city on the river. In more recent times, the Romans formed a great camp here, the fortifications surrounding which now seem like low, even hills. In Saxon days, it was the capital of Wessex. It is very old, and it was very strong and great once. Now it sits aside from the stirring world and nods and dreams. Around Clifton Hampton, itself a wonderfully pretty village, old-fashioned, peaceful, and dainty with flowers, the river scenery is rich and beautiful. 
If you stay the night on land at Clifton, you cannot do better than put up at Barley Mow. It is, without exception, I would say, the quaintest, most old-world inn up the river. It stands on the right of the bridge, quite away from the village. Its low-pitched gables and thatched roof and lattice windows give it quite a storybook appearance, while inside it is even still more once-upon-a-timeified. It would not be a good place for the heroine of a modern novel to stay out. At The heroine of a modern novel is always divinely tall, and she is ever drawing herself up to her full height. At the Barley Mow, she would bump her head against the ceiling each time she did this. It would also be a bad house for a drunken man to put up at. There are too many surprises in the way of unexpected steps down into this room and up into that, and as for getting upstairs to his bedroom, or ever finding his bed when he got up, either operation would be an utter impossibility to him. We were up early the next morning, as we wanted to be in Oxford by the afternoon. It is surprising how early one can get up when camping out. One does not yearn for just another five minutes nearly so much lying wrapped up in a rug on the boards of a boat, with a gladstone bag for a pillow, as one does in a feather bed. We had finished breakfast and were through Clifton Lock by half-past eight. From Clifton to Cullum, the river banks are flat, monotonous, and uninteresting. But after you get through Cullum Lock, the coldest and deepest lock on the river, the landscape improves. At Abingdon, the river passes by the streets. Abingdon is a typical country town of the smaller order, quiet, eminently respectable, clean, and desperately dull. It prides itself on being old, but whether it can compare in this respect with Wallingford and Dorchester seems doubtful. A famous abbey stood here once, and within what is left of its sanctified walls they brew a bitter ale nowadays. In St. Nicholas Church at Abingdon, there is a monument to John Blackwall and his wife Jane, who both, after leading a happy married life, who both, after leading a happy married life, died on the very same day, August 21st, 1625, and in St. Helen's Church, it is, recorded, it is recorded that W. Lee, who died in 1637, had in his lifetime issued from his loins 200 lacking but three. If you work this out, you will find that Mr. W. Lee's family, number, family numbered 197. Mr. W. Lee, five times mayor of Abingdon, was no doubt a benefactor to his generation, but I hope there are not many of his kind about in this overcrowded 19th century. From Abingdon to Newnham Courtney is a lovely stretch. Newnham Park is well worth a visit. It can be viewed on Tuesdays and Thursdays. The house contains a fine collection of pictures and curiosities, and the grounds are very beautiful. The pool under Sanford Lasher, just behind the lock, is a very good place to drown yourself in. The undercurrent is terribly strong, and if you once get down into it, you are all right. An obelisk marks the spot where two men have already been drowned while bathing there, and the steps of the obelisk are generally used as a diving board by young men now who wish to see if the place really is dangerous. Ifley, Lock, and Mill, a mile before you reach Oxford, is a favorite subject with the river-loving brethren of the brush. The real article, however, is rather disappointing after the pictures. Few things, I have noticed, come quite up to the pictures of them in this world. We passed through Ifley Lock at about half-past twelve, and then, having tidied up the boat and made all ready for landing, we set to work on our last mile. Between Ifley and Oxford is the most difficult bit of the river I know. You want to be born on that last bit of water to understand it. I have been over it a fairish number of times, but I have never been able to get the hang of it. The man who could row a straight course from Oxford to Ifley ought to be able to live comfortably under one roof with his wife, his mother-in-law, his eldest sister, and the old servant who was in the family when he was a baby. 
from the current, first the current drives you onto the right bank, and then onto the left, and then it takes you out into the middle, turns you around three times, and carries you upstream again, and always ends by trying to smush you up against a college barge. Of course, as a consequence of this, we got in the way of a good many other boats during the mile, and they and ours, and of course, as a consequence of that, a good deal of bad language occurred. I don't know why it should be, but everybody is always so exceptionally irritable on the river. Little mishaps that you would hardly notice on dry land drive you nearly frantic with rage when they occur on the water. When Harris or George makes an ass of himself on dry land, I smile indulgently. When they behave in a chucklehead way on the river, I use the most blood-curdling language to them. When another boat gets in my way, I feel I want to take an oar and kill all the people in it. The mildest-tempered people, when on land, become violent and bloodthirsty when in a boat. I did a little boating once with a young lady. She was naturally of the sweetest and gentlest disposition imaginable, but on the river it was quite awful to hear her. Oh, drat the man, she would exclaim when some unfortunate scholar would get in her way. Why doesn't he look where he's going? And, oh, bother the silly old thing, she would say indignantly when the sail would not go up properly, and she would catch hold of it and shake it quite brutally. Yet, as I have said, when on shore she was kind-hearted and amiable enough. The air of the river has a demoralizing effect upon one's temper, and this is this it is, I suppose, which causes even bargemen to be sometimes rude to one another, and to use language which, no doubt, in their calmer moments they regret. Chapter 19. The Last Chapter. Oxford. Montmorency's idea of heaven. The hired upriver boat, its beauties and advantages. The pride of the Thames. The weather changes. The river under different aspects. Not a cheerful evening. Yearnings for the unobtainable. The cheery chat goes round. George performs upon the banjo, a mournful melody, another wet day, flight, a little supper, and a toast. We spent two very pleasant days at Oxford. There are plenty of dogs in the town of Oxford. Montmorency had eleven fights on the first day, and fourteen on the second, and evidently thought he had got to heaven. Among folk too constitutionally weak, or too con constitutionally lazy, whichever it may be, to relish upstream work, it is a common practice to get a boat at Oxford and row down. For the energetic, however, the upstream journey is certainly to be preferred. It does not seem good to be always going with the current. There is more satisfaction in squaring one's back and fighting against it, and winning one's way forward in spite of it, at least so I feel, when Harris and George are sculling and I am steering. To those who do contemplate making Oxford their starting place, I would say, take your own boat, unless, of course, you can take someone else's without any possible danger of being found out. The boats that, as a rule, are let for hire on the Thames above Marlow are very good boats. They are fairly watertight, and so long as they are handled with care, they rarely come to pieces or sink. There are places in them to sit down on, and they are complete with all the necessary arrangements, or nearly all, to enable you to row them and steer them. But they are not ornamental. The boat you hire up the river above Marlow is not the sort of boat in which you can flash about and give yourself airs. The hired upriver boat very soon puts a stop to any nonsense of that sort on the part of its occupants. That is its chief. One may say its only recommendation. The man in the hired upriver boat is modest and retiring. He likes to keep on the shady side underneath the trees and to do most of his traveling early in the morning or late at night, when there are not many people about on the river to look at him. When the man in the hired upriver boat sees anyone he knows, he gets out on the bank and hides behind a tree. I was one of a party who hired an upriver boat one summer for a few days' trip. We had none of us ever seen the hired upriver boat before, and we did not know what it was when we did see it. 
We had written for a boat, a double sculling skiff, and we went down with our bags to the yard and gave our names. The man said, Oh, yes, you're the party that wrote for a double sculling skiff. It's all right, Jim, fetch round the pride of the Thames. The boy went and reappeared five minutes afterwards, struggling with an antediluvian chunk of wood that looked as though it had been recently dug out of somewhere and dug out carelessly, so as to have been unnecessarily damaged in the process. My own idea, on first catching sight of the object, was that it was a Roman relic of some sort. Relic of what, I do not know, possibly of a coffin. The neighborhood of the Upper Thames is rich in Roman relics, and my surmise seemed to me a very probable one, but our serious young man, who was a bit of a geologist, pooh-poohed my Roman relic theory, and said it was clear to the meanest intellect, in which category he seemed to be grieved that he could not conscientiously include mine, that the thing the boy had found was the fossil of a whale, and he pointed out to us various evidences proving that it must have belonged to the pre-glacial period. To settle the debate, we appealed to the boy. We told him not to be afraid, but to speak the plain truth. Was it the fossil of a pre-Adamite whale, or was it an early Roman coffin? The boy said it was the pride of the Thames. We thought this a very humorous answer on the part of the boy at first, and somebody gave him twopence as a reward for his ready wit. But when he persisted in keeping up the joke, as we thought, too long, we got vexed with him. "'Come, my lad,' said our captain sharply. "'Don't let us have any nonsense. You take your mother's Washington home again and bring us a boat.' The boat builder himself came up then and assured us, on his word as a practical man, that the thing really was a boat, was in fact the boat, the double-sculling skiff selected to take us on our trip down the river. We grumbled a good deal. We thought he might at least have had it whitewashed or tarred, had something done to it to distinguish it from a bit of a wreck, but he could not see any fault in it. He even seemed offended at our remarks. He said he had picked us out the best boat in all his stock, and he thought we might have been more grateful. He said it, the pride of the Thames, had been in use just as it now stood, or rather as it now hung together, for the last forty years, to his knowledge, and nobody had complained of it before, and he did not see why we should be the first to begin. We argued no more. We fastened the so-called boat together with some pieces of string, got a bit of wallpaper and pasted over the shabbier pieces, said our prayers, and stepped on board. They charged us thirty-five shillings for the loan of the remnant for six days, and we could have bought the thing out and out for four and sixpence at any sale of driftwood round the coast. The weather changed on the third day. Oh, I am talking about our present trip now. And we started from Oxford upon our homeward journey in the midst of a steady drizzle. The river, with the sunlight flashing from its dancing wavelets, gilding gold the gray-green beech trunks, glinting through the dark, cool wood paths, chasing shadows o'er the shallows, flinging diamonds from the mill wheels, throwing kisses to the lilies, wantoning with the weir's white waters, silvering moss-grown walls and bridges, brightening every tiny townlet, making sweet each lane and meadow, lying tangled in the rushes, peeping, laughing from each inlet, gleaming gay on many a fair sail, making soft the air with glory. It is a golden fairy stream. But the river, chill and weary, with the ceaseless raindrops falling on its brown and sluggish waters, with the sound as of a woman, weeping low in some dark chamber, while the woods, all dark and silent, shrouded in their mists of vapor, stand like ghosts upon the margin, silent ghosts with eyes reproachful, like the ghost of evil actions, like the ghost of friends neglected, is a spirit-haunted water through the land of vain regrets. Sunlight is the lifeblood of nature. Mother Earth looks at us with such dull, soulless eyes when the sunlight has died away from out of her. 
It makes us sad to be with her then. She does not seem to know us or to care for us. She is as a widow who has lost the husband she loved, and her children touch her hand and look up into her eyes but gain no smile from her. We rode on all that day through the rain, and very melancholy work it was. We pretended at first that we enjoyed it. We said it was a change and that we liked to see the river under all its different aspects. We said we could not expect to have it all sunshine, nor should we wish it. We told each other that nature was beautiful, even in her tears. Indeed, Harris and I were quite enthusiastic about the business for the first few hours, and we sang a song about a gypsy's life and how delightful a gypsy's existence was, free to storm and sunshine and and to every wind that blew, and how he enjoyed the rain and what a lot of good it did him, and how he laughed at people who didn't like it. George took the fun more soberly and stuck to the umbrella. We hoisted the cover before we had lunch and kept it up all all the afternoon, just leaving a little space in the bow from which one of us could paddle and keep a lookout. In this way, we made nine miles and pulled up for the night at a little below day's lock. I cannot honestly say that we had a merry evening. The rain poured down with quiet persistency. Everything in the boat was damp and clammy. Supper was not a success. Cold veal pie, when you don't feel hungry, is apt to cloy. I felt I wanted wine bait and a white bait and a cutlet. Harris babbled of soles and white sauce and passed the remains of his pie to Montmorency, who declined it, and apparently insulted by the offer, went and sat over at the other end of the boat by himself. George requested that we would not talk about these things, at all events, until he had finished his cold boiled beef without mustard. We played penny nap after supper. We played for about an hour and a half, by the end of which time George had won fourpence. George always is lucky at cards and Harris and I had lost exactly two pence each. We thought we would give up gambling then. As Harris said, it breeds an unhealthy excitement when carried too far. George offered to go on and give us our revenge, but Harris and I decided not to battle any further against fate. After that, we mixed ourselves some toddy and sat round and talked, and who had slept out in a damp boat on just such another night as that was and it had given him rheumatic fever, and nothing was able to save him, and he had died in great agony ten days afterwards. George said he was quite a young man and was engaged to be married. He said it was one of the saddest things he had ever known. And that put Harris in mind of a friend of his, who had been in the volunteers, and who had slept out under canvas one night, one wet night down at Aldershot, on just such another night as this, said Harris, and he had woke up in the morning a cripple for life. Harris said he would introduce us both to the man when we got back to town. It would make our hearts bleed to see him. This naturally led to some pleasant chat about sciatica, fevers, chills, lung disease, and bronchitis, and Harris said how very awkward it would be if one of us were taken seriously ill in the night, seeing how far away we were from a doctor. There seemed to be a desire for something frolicsome to follow up this conversation, and in a weak moment I suggested that George should get out his banjo and see if he could not give us a comic song. I will say for George that he did not want any pressing. There was no nonsense about having left his music at home or anything of that sort. He at once fished out his instrument and commenced to play Two Lovely Black Eyes. I had always regarded Two Lovely Black Eyes as rather a commonplace tune until that evening. The rich vein of sadness that George extracted from it quite surprised me. The desire that grew upon Harris and myself, as the mournful strains progressed, was to fall upon each other's necks and weep, but by great effort we kept back the rising tears and listened to the wild, yearnful melody in silence. When the chorus came, we even made a desperate effort to be merry, 
We refilled our glasses and joined in, Harris and Joyce trim with emotion, leading, and George and I following a few words behind. Two lovely black eyes, oh, what a surprise, only for telling a man he was wrong. Two, there we broke down, the unutterable pathos of George's accompaniment to that two we were, in our then state of depression, unable to bear. Harris sobbed like a little child, and the dog howled till I thought or his jaw must surely break. George wanted to go on with another verse. He thought that when he had got a little more into the tune and could throw more abandon, as it were, into the rendering, it might not seem so sad. The feeling of the majority, however, was opposed to the experiment. There had been nothing else to do, so we went to bed, that is, we undressed ourselves and tossed about at the bottom of the boat for some three or four hours, after which we managed to get some fitful slumber until 5 a.m., when we all got up and had breakfast. The second day was exactly like the first. The rain continued to pour down, and we sat, wrapped in our Macintoshes, underneath the canvas and drifted slowly down. One of us, I forget which now, but I rather think it was myself, made a few feeble attempts during the course of the morning to work up the old gypsy foolishness about being children of nature and enjoying the wet. But it did not go down well at all. That, I care not for the rain, not I, was so painfully evident, as expressing the sentiments of each of us, that to sing it seemed unnecessary. On one point we were all agreed that it was that that was that, come what might, we would go through with this job to the bitter end. We had come out for a fortnight's enjoyment on the river, and a fortnight's enjoyment on the river we meant to have, if it killed us. Well, that would be a sad thing for our friends and relations, but it could not be helped. We felt that to give in to the weather in a climate such as ours would be a most disastrous precedent. It's only two days more, said Harrison. We are young and strong. We may get over it all right, after all. At about four o'clock, we began to discuss our arrangements for the evening. We were a little past Goring then, and we decided to paddle on to Pangbourne and put up there for the night. Another jolly evening, murmured George. We sat and mused on the prospect. We should be in at Pangbourne by five. We should finish our dinner at, say, half past six. After that, we could walk about the village in the pouring rain until bedtime, or we could sit in a dimly lit bar parlor and read the almanac. Why, the Alhambra would be almost more lively, said Harris, venturing his head outside the cover for a moment and taking a survey of the sky the little supper at the blank to follow footnote a capital little out of the way restaurant in the neighborhood of blank where you can get one of the best cooked and cheapest little french dinners or suppers that i know of with an excellent bottle of bone for three and six in which i am not going to be idiot enough to advertise i added half unconsciously yes it's almost a pity we've made up our minds to stick to this boat answered harris and then there was silence for a while "'If we hadn't made up our minds to contract our certain deaths in this bally old coffin,' observed George, casting a glance of intense malevolence over the boat, "'it might be worthwhile to mention that there's a train leaves Pangbourne, I know, soon after five, which would just land us in town to in comfortable time to get a chop, and then go on to the place you mentioned afterwards.' Nobody spoke. We looked at one another, and each one seemed to see his own mean and guilty thoughts reflected in the faces of the others. In silence, we dragged out and overhauled the gladstone.' We looked up the river and down the river. Not a soul was in sight. Twenty minutes later, three figures, followed by a shamed-looking dog, might have been seen creeping stealthily from the boathouse at the Swan towards the railway station, dressed in the following neither neat nor gaudy costume. Black leather shoes, dirty. Suit of boating flannels, very dirty. Brown felt hat, much battered. Mackintosh, very wet. Umbrella. We had deceived the boatman at Pangbourne. 
We had not had the face to tell him that we were running away from the rain. We had left the boat and all it contained in his charge, with instructions that it was to be ready for us at nine the next morning. If, we said, if anything unforeseen should happen, preventing our return, we would write to him. We reached Paddington at seven and drove direct to the restaurant I have before described, where we partook of a light meal, left Montmorency, together with suggestions for supper to be ready at half-past ten, and then continued our way to Leicester, Leicester Square. We attracted a good deal of attention at the Alhambra. On our presenting ourselves at the pay-box, we were gruffly directed to go around to Castle Street, and were informed that we were half an hour behind our time. We convinced the man with some difficulty that we were not the world-renowned contortionists from the Himalaya Mountains, and he took our money and let us pass. Inside, we were a still greater success. Our fine, bronzed countenances and picturesque clothes were followed round the place with admiring gaze. We were the cynosure of every eye. It was a proud moment for us all. We adjourned soon after the first ballet, ballet and wended our way back to the restaurant where supper was already waiting us. I must confess to enjoying that supper. For about ten days we seemed to have been living more or less on nothing but cold meat, cake, and bread, and jam. It had been a simple, a nutritious diet, but there had been nothing exciting about it, and the odor of burgundy and the smell of French sauces and the sight of clean napkins and long loaves knocked as a very welcome visitor at the door of our inner man. We pegged and quaffed away in silence for a while, until the time came when, instead of sitting bolt upright and grasping the knife and fork firmly, we leant back in our chairs and worked slowly and carelessly. When we stretched our legs out beneath the table, let our napkins fall unheeded to the floor, and found time to more critically examine the smoky ceiling than we had hitherto been able to do. When we rested our glasses at arm's length upon the table, and felt good and thoughtful and forgiving. Then Harris, who was sitting next to the window, drew aside the curtain and looked out upon the street. It glistened darkly in the wet, the dim lamps flickered with each gust, the rain splashed steadily into the puddles and tricked down trickled down the water spout into the running gutters. A few soaked wayfarers hurried past, crouching beneath their dripping umbrellas, the women holding up their skirts. Well, said Harris, reaching his hand out for his glass, we have had a pleasant trip, and my hearty thanks for it to old Father Tim's. But I think we did well to chuck it when we did. Here's to three men well out of a boat. And Montmorency, standing on his hind legs before the window, peering out into the night, gave a short bark of decided concurrence with the toast. The end.